Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Wonderful to see you all. Thank you for being here. It's wonderful to learn with Rabbi David Wolpe again. You can find some of his great recordings, interviews, and talks in our Valley Beit Midrash Learning Library, um, as well as many things publicly accessible as well. Um, and we have a delightful topic today to reflect on. And we are thrilled to partner today with Temple Emmanuel, our great partner in Denver, and also with BMHBJ, our other great partner in Denver today. And for that, I'm going to pass it over to my colleague, Rabbi Yaakov Chaitavsky, to introduce our speaker today. Thank you very much, Rib Shmuley, and welcome to everyone. Uh, we're in for a real treat today. Um, Rabbi Wolpe really doesn't need much of an introduction to those who have been here in Valley Beit Midrash before. Uh, Rabbi Wolpe is one of the most influential rabbis in America, one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world. He is not only a rabbi and scholar, but is a public proponent of religion, has been engaged in debate with some of the most ardent opponents of religion and has uh, is still breathing and still standing. So we must applaud the work that he has done. Uh, you can find much more of his bio uh, on uh, the Valley Baby Nourish website. If I can, I'll post it in the chat. But he is currently serving as the senior rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, um, one of the largest and most prominent conservative synagogues in the country. And without any further ado, I give you Rabbi David Wolpe. Thank you, Rabbi Chaitovsky, and thank you, uh, Rabbi Angelovitz. Um, and thank you all for being here in order to become happier, at least presumably or hopefully, that will be part of the result of this uh, discussion. And I, I really, I actually think that this is both a wonderful topic to discuss and really a religiously important one because everybody here knows, I, I believe that when you're happier, you tend to be kinder and that um, discomfort, unhappiness, depression doesn't bring out the best in us towards others as a rule. And in fact, I'm gonna begin by just saying something counterintuitive that when, when the, um, Seder says that you should remember, you should be kind to the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I always hear the reverse of what we usually hear. Instead of hearing, look, you know what it's like to be miserable, so be nice to miserable people. What I hear is, I know you were strangers in the land of Egypt, so you might be tempted to say, ah, forget about those strangers. What about us? Because we were strangers. In other words, misery can be very egotistical at times. But even though you were strangers, you have to overcome your own difficulty, victimhood, misery to be kind to others. And that's one of the reasons why I really do believe that when you are happy and when you're joyous, um, it induces something of a more giving spirit to others because you don't feel as closed and as tight inside. Um, and so to try to learn how to be happy even in difficult circumstances, is, I think, a good thing. And after all, simcha shal mitzvah, the joy of doing a mitzvah, is central to our tradition. So it's not like Jews are anti-joy. Um, 
we're not. Uh, we've just had some tough times. Having said that, I'm going to start by by saying that the when things are difficult, um, because a lot of people start to study happiness not because they're happy but because they're unhappy. Um, when things are difficult, the most helpful verse for me in the entire Torah is one that is not particularly associated with um, with attitude or towards human conduct. It really usually referred to by the rabbis in terms of God's judgment. It's when Yishmael um, is and Hagar are, uh, are unceremoniously um, thrown out of the house and God judges Yishmael Ba'asher Husham, where he is. And this idea that we should be where we are is an idea that I think Jews are not as good at as they should be. I will use myself as an example. I was traveling in uh, Thailand and the guy who was driving me around grew up as a monk. And we, were, we came to some place and I said, what are we doing next? And he literally pulls the truck over to the side of the road. And he says to me, why are you always asking me what we're doing next? Why can't you do what we're doing? And I said, well, because I grew up as an erotic Jew in America and you grew up as a Thai monk. So you're used to this. He said, well, it would be a really good thing for you if you could practice not always jumping ahead and just being here. And when people especially come in after a diagnosis or they're worried about something that might happen, I always tell them how much of what it is that we're scared of robs us of our current happiness and how important it is to recognize that it might be that a week from now, something bad will happen. But you can ruin the intervening week by expecting it all week, or you can live the week as it is, and then the bad thing might happen anyway. And yet, I do believe that we are so forward-oriented in both by nature and also, I think, in Judaism a little bit by culture, that Ba'asher Husham, where he is, where you are, is a really helpful counterbalance. Now, I don't mean that you shouldn't pay attention to the past or to the future. I mean, people will say the past is gone and the future doesn't exist. All that exists is now. Yeah, except you have to do a certain amount of planning or you won't get your car out of the garage, right? You can't not live in the future to some extent. Um, but I think that we vastly overdo it by always anticipating, I would say most of the things that I have worried about in my life have never happened. Some have, but the vast majority of them have not happened. Um, all the nights that you worry, why haven't my kids called yet? And yet, 99.999%, not 100, but 99.999%, it's, they're fine. Um, but we torture ourselves uh, by anticipating the bad thing instead of just living in the moment um, and embracing that. That's one. The second piece of advice I have is that our certainties upend us, by which I mean uh, a lot of the unhappiness in the current in society right now is because we are 
so radically polarized on two sides. And one of the reasons why it makes us miserable is not just that people disagree with us, but because we can't stand the contradiction of our own certainties. And if we were more ideologically and, and intellectually humble to recognize that when someone disagrees with me, I probably have something to learn from them. They might have something to learn from me too, but I can't force someone else to learn. The only thing that is in my power is myself. So I can yell and scream at them all day long, but actually they're not going to change their vote because I yell and scream at them. But I can learn something about the way they work or why they work that way or why my fellow citizens don't agree with me or why my fellow Jews don't agree with me if I listen. And it makes the, the interaction far less charged and unhappy making. I've seen this, by the way, um, a related uh, phenomenon here is I've seen this innumerable times on that um, like Roman gladiatorial um, arena of cruelty called Twitter, um, where someone will say something to you that's really mean which has happened to me any number of times. And if your first response is not angry, not mean, level-headed, I understand you're upset, blah, 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 or something like that, I would say 80% of the time, the next response is kind. 80% of the time. The other 20% of the time is because people are on there specifically to be cruel. But most people get triggered, they say something angry. And if you say something angry, you're in a spiral of vituperation that will not go away. But if you don't, it breaks the spiral. And so part of being happy is though that, very, that thing your mother probably told you when you were a kid, which is actually really smart. And that is the count to 10 thing, right? Don't answer right away because anger gives tremendous satisfaction at the moment and leads to bad results later. Um, and, and this is about our own happiness, by the way. I'm not talking about how the other person feels. And the same thing is true with bearing a grudge. I don't know who first said it. I've heard it quoted in many people's um, name, but the idea of bearing a grudge is like drinking poison, hoping, hoping someone else will die right? Because the grudge poisons you. You're the one who feels bad when you have a grudge. It doesn't affect the other person, at least not necessarily. Um, and, and so a lot of our own happiness, we outsource to the reactions of other people without recognizing both that we can affect those reactions. And also one of the ways we do that is by letting go a little bit inside, which makes us much happier. I'm not saying that it is easy, right? Um, but it is really worth practicing. And, and to remember that forgiveness, which is one of the things that makes us happy, believe it or not, because when you haven't forgiven someone, it makes you miserable, right? Doesn't make you happy to not forgive them. It gives you a certain grim satisfaction to know how much better you are than they are, but it doesn't make you happy. Um, but forgiveness, which is one of the things that makes us um, happy is something that Judaism builds its 
tradition around and also is important because we recognize that we need it too, that there is no one who doesn't require forgiveness. And I just want to say in anticipation um, of a, uh, of uh, an objection, to forgive someone does not mean necessarily to re-engage with them. You can forgive someone and not want them in your life. I think that's a perfectly legitimate stance to take. But they no longer plague you internally. You've let go of that. Um, and this is related to one other piece of advice, I will, which I've given many times, when people come to my office and they're depressed, the first and best piece of advice you can give them is go to a soup kitchen. Because when you're depressed, it's not that you will see people who are in worse situations than you are, because you will, but we all know all the time that there are always people in worse situations than we are. But the act of giving, is the most therapeutic act for someone's unhappiness that exists in the world. Being given something sometimes helps too, but giving is, is surefire. It really is, it's, it's like magic, um, which is why the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law says, if you're a beggar and someone gives you money, the first thing you have to do is turn around and give some to someone who's less fortunate than you. Because what it does for the person to be able to give is really, remarkable. Um, and, and it's very rare, actually, that you go to soup kitchens or places like that, and you see the people who are administering the food being miserable. They're not miserable. Some of the people who are getting it might be miserable, but the people who are giving it aren't, because it's unbelievably fulfilling to be able to give. And, and that, by the way, just as a, as a general um, because I know that sometimes people think they're being nice by not taking. Like when someone is, says, I want to give you something, you go, no, 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 it's okay. You're not being nice by not taking. Taking is an act of generosity too. When someone offers, not, not, not just taking, not just like reaching across the table and grabbing the rabbi's food. But, um, but like when someone offers you something and you take it and you take it gratefully, it's a beautiful it, it, it gives someone something. And I'll be very honest with you, even though this is being recorded, I discovered this when I became, really discovered this when I became the rabbi of a synagogue. And people would sometimes want to give me things and I would feel bad about it. Because I feel like, that's nah, like, I, you're not supposed to be giving me things. And when I didn't take them, I could see the genuine upset. It was like I was rejecting the person. Like, you don't want what I have to give you. Why don't you want what I have to give you? And I genuinely saw that much of the time to take something is, um, is an affirmation of the worth of the person's offering. It's not a selfish, oh, I'm going to take this from you. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is, since we're about to come into Martin Luther King Day, what he said about everybody being caught in this network of mutuality in his letter from the Birmingham jail. That's exactly the case. It's the giving and the taking. Both of those things have a really helpful um, part to play in making us uh, much happier than we would otherwise be. And, and no surprise, 
that's because the quality of our lives is by and large the quality of our relationships, right? There are, I mean, you can be very happy. Boober actually said this. He said he could be very happy in a room of books alone, but only if he knew he could open the door and see a face, right? Books are great, but not if you remember that Twilight Zone where there was this guy who like got locked in a vault and all the world was destroyed and he all he had were all these books. The point of the Twilight Zone was, if you've never seen it, by the way, then at the end, he breaks his glasses and can't read. But that's that's Rod Sterling's sense of humor. But the point is, even if you love books, and I do, it's not it's not the same as the enormous charge that you get out of being with community, which is why Judaism is such a deeply communal tradition, because that's how we, we didn't go alone through the wilderness, right? We went as a people through the wilderness. Um, to be able to hold hands, that's the essence of what it means to be a Jew and, and even um, to be a person. And, and this relationship and the primacy of relationship, you can see most beautifully um, in the story of Moses, that when Moses, who is, after all, the paradigmatic figure in the Jewish tradition, not a perfect person, because we don't have perfect people, right? No Jewish parent says, you know, I want you to grow up and be just like Moses, right? We don't do that. Um, and, and we have no bracelets that say, what would Moses do? Uh, but, but, he, but he was as close, he did as well as a human being could do. And at the end of his life, what is the Torah's praise of Moses? Does it say Moses did more meets vote than anyone else? No. Does it say, you know, Moses, uh, I don't know, was the greatest leader ever? No. It says Moses saw God face to face. In other words, Moses had the peak of relationship because that's ultimately the aim. That's ultimately the aim. And surely in terms of happiness, there is no happiness in the absence of healthy or nurturing relationships. And those relationships can be lots of different kinds of relationships, right? Sometimes they're romantic relationships, sometimes they're friendships, sometimes they're siblings, sometimes they're children, lots of different relationships. Remember the first time love is mentioned in the Bible, it's not husband and wife, it's parent and child. That's the first love when God says, about Isaac to Abraham, Asher Ahavta. That's the first mention of love for one human being for another. It may not be the first time someone loves, it's the first time it's mentioned. And so lots of different kinds of loves can be sustaining to human life. It's a very American, much more than a Jewish thing, to think that romantic love is the be all and end all. And if you don't have romantic love, then your life must be empty. I know a lot of people who don't have romantic loves whose lives are very filled with love. And so there are um, lots, and by the way, I think that synagogues in particular are sort of reservoirs of this possibility of different kinds of relationships and close relationships that aren't necessarily romantic relationships. Um, and, and remember that even, just to put an even finer point on this, I'll, I'll, I'll quote two other biblical characters since, I should, I suppose. Um, Job, Job suffers terribly. 
And what is the answer of the book of Job? Well, it's been debated for years and I have my own theories and other people have their theories, but I'll tell you what the overwhelming answer is at the end of the book of Job is that God comes out of the sky and talks to Job. In other words, the answer is relationship. Job feels alone. God no, God says, I'm here. You no longer need feel alone. And if you remember, um, this is what it means to be a Jew, because when Ruth converts to Judaism, she does not say to Naomi, ah, I like your abstract concept of God. I like this whole idea of Maimonides, you know, suggesting that uh, there are, that at the beginning of time, there had to be something that preceded time in order to create time. I think I'll become a Jew. No, she says, where you go, Naomi, I will go, right? Where you lie, I will lie. Your people will be my people. And only then does she say, your God will be my God. In other words, it begins in human relationship, conversion to Judaism. In the, in the most um, cited case, once you connect to another human being, then you can travel that journey together. And I, I note again, the conversion doesn't begin in a romantic relationship. Ruth and Naomi are not romantic partners, right? It's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And yet that leads to, among other things, the birth of the Messiah eventually, right? Because it comes from the line of Ruth. Um, so the Jewish emphasis on your connection to another human being and the insistence that happiness is not a purely internal um, an, an internal uh, mechanism or achievement is really, really important. Because even when you are happy about something, how much happier are you when you can tell someone that you care about, I'm happy about this, right? Or I'm unhappy about that. And when we lose someone we love, how much of that is the loss of the ability to say, this is what I, and in fact, there's a really wonderful concept, which if you're not aware of it, um, I want to call to your attention because it's helpful and for me at least in thinking about human relations. I read this in psychology. I don't know what psychologist came up with this, but I'm sure you can Google it and find out. So this psychologist talked about transactive memory. Transactive memory is, I don't, I like until uh, about a year ago, okay, I live with my daughter. All right, now she moved out and she's in graduate school and uh, I'm sure that She's, you know, almost as happy as she was when she lived with me. But transactive memory is, Samara, I don't know how this remote control works. Can you tell me how it works? And she'll do the remote control. Or, Dad, I don't remember the way to the doctor's office. How do I get to the doctor's office? And in other words, when you're in a close relationship with someone, your memory is partly their memory too. It's transactive. I know that I don't have to figure out how the remote works because she's right there and she's going to tell me. And she knows she doesn't have to learn how to get to the doctor's office because I'm there and I'll be able to tell her. And when we have any kind of close relationship, we have this transactive memory with each other about our lives too. I don't remember, where did we go on that trip four years ago? Remember, we were in somewhere in the Midwest. What was the name of that town we stopped at? Your transactive memory will tell you. And 
this shows in a, in a deep way how much we're not really bounded individuals, how much we really do interpenetrate one with the other such that we literally carry each other's memories. And one of the things you lose when someone you love passes away is you lose the transacted memory that you have with that person. And one of the things that you build when you build a relationship with someone else is that transactive memory. And, and to have that, to feel enmeshed in this network of mutuality is in part um, to be happy. And then I would say that um, it also makes us happy when we are conscious of and accepting of our limitations. And here, what I mean is, you know, there's a Shakespearean sonnet where he says, desiring this man's art and that man's scope with what I most enjoy contented least. And I'm thinking to myself, if Shakespeare is jealous of someone's art and someone's scope, right? Then obviously, no matter how much you do, you're always gonna feel like there's someone else who does it better. I mean, do I know everything that I do in my life? I know other people who do it better. Doesn't matter what it is, except for being me. I do that best. Um, but apart from that, everything else someone does better. And there are two ways of, of seeing that. One is, therefore, I will be miserable all the time because every time I think, I mean, I'm about to go to Israel to speak at a, uh, to speak at a uh, memorial conference for Rabbi Sachs. For Jonathan Sachs. And every now and then I would read something he would write and how it go. I wish I could have written that. But of course, I couldn't. He could, but I couldn't. And there were two ways of viewing that. One is, boy, I'm really glad there's a Rabbi Sachs to write that because I think it's really important that someone wrote it. Or the other is, boy, I'm really miserable because I didn't write it. And if you understand your limitations and you know that you have something unique that you bring to the world, it makes, <clears throat> makes you much happier. It really does. And I think that this is something that you learn actually as you get older. It's easier older than it is younger. The older you get, the more you think, you know what? The world, I mean, they're like the graveyards are full of indispensable people. Nobody is indispensable. Everybody passes through. Everybody has limitations. All of us can't do things that other people can do. All of us are going to fall short in a thousand different ways, and that's okay. It's okay. It shouldn't make you complacent and lazy, but it also relieves you of some of the burden of being perfect. You don't have to be perfect. You know, that job description in the Jewish tradition is already filled, and it's not by a person. So we don't have to be perfect, and that's very helpful to keep in mind and to sort of calm yourself when you recognize that you know, your job is to do yourself as well as you can. And even then, by the way, people always say your job is just to do your best. I don't know anyone who always does their best. I don't always do my best. God, I think it would be so unbelievably exhausting to always do your best, right? Sometimes you do your best and sometimes you do okay. Every now and then, I will tell you again, this is being recorded, so I should not say this. But every now and then, over the course of the years, when I have given sermons, I've sat down and said to my assistant, that was product. 
That's what they call it in Hollywood, you know, when you turn out a movie, but it's not really such a good movie. It's just because I know that, like, I don't give my best sermon every Shabbat morning. I don't, because whatever was going on during that week, maybe I didn't have as much time to prepare, or maybe you get up and sometimes you just don't feel it. So that's the reality of what it is to be a person. And, and if we accept that about ourselves, it makes us, I think, a lot happier. And by the way, if we accept, accept it about other people, it makes us a lot happier because that way we're not constantly, constantly um, judging and, and feeling disappointed in them uh, and, and so forth. And, and I do believe that um, if you expect better of others in a hopeful and joyous way, you get much better of others. If you expect better of others in a judging and, and disapproving way, you might get better, but the end result will not be, you know? In fact, I, I heard once the rabbi who started the Jewish 12-step program, Rabbi Tversky, who was a Hasidic rabbi, he said when he was young, his father, and he did something wrong, his father wouldn't say you're bad, and his father wouldn't even say what you did was bad. His father would say to him, what you did is not worthy of you, which is a great way to tell a child, I think you're tremendous and you're better than this, right? Because it's affirming at the same time as it is you could do better. And so I think that that's true in some ways for just about all of us. We all could do better and we know we could do better. And, and you know, next time, God willing, uh, we will, but we can't always. And then um, I also really do, uh, I, I want to just introduce one more quality, um, which is a religious quality that's not very, uh, it's not very um, prominent in society, unfortunately. It used to be much more so. Um, some things are, are better today, some things are not as good. And that is the quality of modesty. Because if you look, for example, at the biblical heroes, none of them wanted to be prophets because they didn't think they were worthy of it. And, and today, if a candidate got up and said, listen, I'm running for office, but I really don't think that I'm worthy of this office, nobody would vote for them. No, you have to say, I am the best. The other guy is lousy. Um, you have to spike the football in the end zone. You have to talk about how you're the greatest. That's the culture that we live in. Um, but modesty also is a quality, I think, that actually contributes to happiness. And especially the definition of modesty that is the best definition I know. And I'm going to say it twice, because if you don't know this, you're going to want to write it down. It's that good. C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer. He said, modesty is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Think about that. Modesty is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In other words, weirdly, when you don't always put yourself in the center of the circle, you tend to be happier than when you're always exquisitely aware of your own being at the center of the circle. That's why giving makes you happy because you're selfless for a moment. You're not thinking about you, you know? And it's, um, it's a wonderful, 
it's just a wonderful gift that we're given. And that's partly what modesty is supposed to enable us to do is to take us away from ourselves and to recognize the virtue in others. Um, I know some people, and you probably do too, who are genuinely happy when someone they know achieves. They're genuinely happy. And those people are genuinely happy people. They really are. They're not dour. They're not angry. They're not. They're genuinely happy in the achievements of others. Because by the way, if you can be genuinely happy in the achievements of others, you have a lot to be happy about in the world. And that gives you, you know, the more people you know, the more area you have for. So I could give, I mean, I can give specific. It's, it makes you happy to learn something. Um, it makes you happy to, to um, engage in something that you love to do. We all know this. Um, but I really do think that some minor adjustments in our internal being can make us happy. And I will tell you, again, I've, uh, I, I've said this before, even though it's like probably not a very nice thing for a rabbi to say, but since I've said it before and it goes to this point, um, I mentioned that I used to live with my daughter. She used to make fun of me all the time about the same thing, which is it would be Saturday night. I would say to her invariably, I can't believe I have to get off the couch. I have to get dressed in a stupid tuxedo and I have to go and do a wedding at the whatever hotel or, what, or at the show or wherever the wedding was. And I really, honestly, that's how I felt. I really didn't, I don't want to do that. I'm home, I'm comfortable. I, like, I would like to just watch something and go to sleep. She said, and then every single time you got home and I said, dad, how's the way? And you went, it was great. And the truth is it did completely change my way of being when I did it. And that's, and that's a really important happiness lesson is sometimes you have to force yourself to do something to change the mood that if you don't do anything, will stay the same. Like if you're depressed and somebody says, let's go out dancing, you go, no, I don't want to because you're part of you might be enjoying your depression, but, um, but if you do go out dancing, you'll definitely change your mood. And by the way, if you officiated at a wedding, totally changes your mood. Take it from me. Um, so sometimes we have to look out for our own long-term interests and do things that we don't want to do, knowing ourselves well enough to know that when we do, it will change us. Uh, and then I'll, 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 I'll end with this for now. Um, and then I know we'll have a chance to, to talk. Um, the other thing is that this, this is a constant process. It's a con there is no formula for happiness and then you're done. Um, one, another thing that I have discovered as I've gotten older, which I really did not know when I was younger, is that when you're older, you actually don't get the answers. What you get is the chance to see more of the puzzle. That is, life gets more complicated and you see more pieces, so you understand more, but you don't get the answers. And so, and so at every stage of life, if you're aware and awake to it and learning, um, you discover more about yourself and also about the world, which are in their way equally unfathomable. Um, that's another reason, by the way, not to judge others. Because when people judge others, I mean, severe, obviously, 
there's a certain amount of judgment that has to go on in the world. And I judge like, just like you do. And someone, you know, and, and I, I don't want to say I withhold judgment about Bernie Madoff, um, but we do judge. But when you realize how little sometimes you know yourself, how much you surprise yourself, how many parts of yourself you have not explored, or how much you didn't know about yourself 10 years ago that you know now. So therefore, in another three years, you might know much more than you know now. When you realize that, then you realize your judgments of others have got to be inevitably partial and, and ill-informed. I mean, if I don't know me, how am I supposed to know someone else well enough to be able to judge them so thoroughly? Um, and how is it that people that you know well and live with and have spent years with can turn around and surprise you? It's because we're all infinite, just like the world. And, uh, and keeping that in mind, too, lets you know that there is, there's no reason to be bored when there are endless worlds inside and outside um, for us to discover. So with that, I am happy to take any questions, comments, reactions. Thank you so like. much. I know you're talking a lot about anti-Semitism these days, so it must be nice to talk about uh, the, the joys and so, meaning of life. It is so nice to talk about yes. right. Right. how to like ourselves instead of how other people don't like us. Yes, wonderful, wonderful. Yes, friends, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if it's okay with Rabbi, won't be uh, uh, questions relevant to this topic. Are you okay taking things? I'll take it whatever question anyone Wonderful. wants to ask. I'm totally, Wonderful. Okay. Absolutely. All right, friends. Just uh, you can raise a hand. You're also welcome to type in the chat if you'd like. If you're a little shy about that, you can type privately to me, and I can read it without your name if you'd like. Yes. Hi, Gil. Hi. Thank you so much, Rabbi. It's been a sure. wonderful, inspiring talk. Um, question for you about relationships. Um, I know that all of the prophets had relationships with God and uh, kind of a back and forth type of uh, conversation. And I don't see a lot of that in our practice of Judaism. And um, I wanted to know how, um, if you could touch on that and how that would impact happiness. So I started my career um, writing books about God precisely for that reason, because I grew up in a, a rabbi's home and in Jewish schools and in summer camps. And it was amazing how much people didn't talk about God. Um, and, and it was like the, it was the quiet at the center of the whole culture. Um, but I really do believe that the, and, and one of the reasons, um, I, I could talk about this a lot and I, I don't want to give my whole, like, why don't we talk about God lecture? Uh, but one of the reasons is because we have ideas of God that make it um, uncomfortable or even embarrassing to talk to God because we still have the old man in the sky idea who's going to reach down and do this, that, or the other thing. And, and that's not that's not what any of us are comfortable. I shouldn't say any of us. It's what many of us are not comfortable talking. About. But here's, here's, how, here's my, my test of if you're religious. If you think that the world is a mystery instead of a puzzle. In other words, it's not that we just haven't figured it out. You could figure it out, but that it's unfigureoutable, that it's infinite, that there is more in this world than stuff. Then what I would say is, it is possible for all of us to live a life that has some kind of harmony 
with that greater whatever God is. And that to seek some kind of relationship with that um, through prayer, through meditation, through walks in nature, through quiet, through community, through all the ways that Jews do that, um, through music, which sometimes is as powerful as anything else, uh, is, I think, absolutely a, a huge contributor to happiness. Uh, I think people are happier when they feel like they have a relationship to God, however they think of God, than when they feel like they have no relationship to God and the universe is cold and indifferent and, and isn't in any way about them. Um, so I do think that it is an under an underutilized resource um, in the Jewish tradition, and it can be difficult to talk about, but I think it's really important. Um, and in fact, in a certain way, although I'll leave this for another time, that's what I hope to be working on over the next year after I leave the synagogue. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Rabbi. Hi, Aglaia. Okay, sorry, that was my alarm clock going off. I don't know why it was, but anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so um, this is going to sound like a weird question. I probably should not say this because this is being recorded, but you know, if you can do it, I can do it too, all right? Yeah. So long story short, though, I, well, I was raised according to the playbook of my child is a prodigy, blah, 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 because they do this and that and the other. Now, when I was a little kid, I found the word smart to be kind of ridiculous, label, just another label, all of that other stuff. But at the same time, though, I was trying to live up to, you know, standards and everything like that. So I had this push and pull about, well, I don't believe that anybody's smarter than anyone else because everybody's smart in some way. And then I have to live up to being like, you know, like mm -hmm. honor student, all that garbage and everything like that. So my question is, though, is that you have, um, like, I'm, when I gave up on all interest in being smart, though, that's when I became a lot happier. But you have a lot here about like, okay, so we have our communities and we accept our limitations and all of that other stuff, though, which is great stuff. However, though, when you're actually looking at all of these social assumptions, communal assumptions, all of this around you, and you're having that conflict about, do I actually believe this? What, you know, I mean, do I actually believe this? Is this really actually like, you know, contributing to my happiness or is this kind of like leading me away from happiness and everything? Could you speak to that a little bit? Um, when you say this, you mean? Oh, just anything, meaning like, say for so instance, yeah. I think the I I think in some ways that is this contributing to my happiness is not the best question because at least in my experience I'm happiest when I'm not thinking about happiness. Awesome. I don't go to the wedding to be happy. I go to the wedding because that's what I'm supposed to do and happiness is much more a byproduct than it is an aim or a goal. It just happens. It's like if you see someone playing piano and they're really good at it they didn't sit down to be happy they sat down to play piano and in the course of playing it they might be happy um so i think that a lot of it is to to i mean the ideal is to achieve what that the, the psychologist with the unpronounceable name begins with a c calls flow Right. I, I don't know. I don't remember how to say his name. I think he just passed away, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that that sense when you're you're self forgetful so much so that you you're just doing what you do. Um, this is just your 
art, your, I mean, it doesn't have to be art, but your, this is your, um, say for some person, one person can be cooking, for another person it can be running a marathon, for another person it can be giving a sermon, who knows? Um, and, and so I agree with you. And, and it's also certainly true. There is no correlation between IQ points and happiness, right? None at all. The one thing I will say though about SMART is that um, to be, I mean, all of us know people who are SMART in certain areas and it does give them a greater latitude of comprehension and maneuver. And so I'm thinking, for example, I used to be a tournament chess player. I could see the ones who were, re and I was not one of them. I could see the ones who were really good. Who were Now, that doesn't mean they were necessarily smarter than the ones who weren't. They might've been terrible at spelling. I don't know. But, but as you say, like when you have a skill in an area, it does give you more latitude to try to work in that area. And that itself can sometimes bring happiness because we tend to be happier doing things that we're good at. Not always, but we tend to be happier doing things that we're good at, which is why we don't like to do things that we're not good at, even though that's a really probably useful skill. One of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, now that I'm retiring in, uh, in six months, even though I'll still write and teach and speak, but I keep thinking I should learn how to do something. I mean, that's what all the experts tell you, right? Like play an instrument that you don't know how to play or learn a language you don't know how to speak. It's like, it's good to force your brain into directions that it wouldn't otherwise go. Um, <clears throat> even though I suspect that a lot of the time you do that, you're not going to be happy, but, but in the end, you'll probably be glad you did. I hope. So. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Good afternoon. Um, so I actually have two questions um, from what you said. One was, that you invited us to accept gifts. And while that sounds wonderful, and it is, and it's particularly lovely when, especially if someone's offering you thanks, that you're able to help them identify what it was that you actually did that they're grateful for, it's such a gift to both people. However, when one is being assailed by vicious attack. That's also some sort of gift. And you suggested that I reflect and that I look at it, but after I've approached it with compassion, that other person with empathy, if I'm still being assailed, the Buddha said, you know, you tell them, take their gift home. You don't want it. And I'm sure that somewhere in the Tanakh, it tells us something very similar. Sure. It's no longer a gift. So I'm wondering at what point do we say, no, I don't have to accept all of the gifts that are offered to me. I have autonomy and I can make a choice. Well, you never have to accept all the gifts that are offered to you. That's the meaning of a gift. Meaning of a gift is it can be freely given and freely accepted or rejected. And, and these kinds of questions are so highly individual situation dependent that it's hard sometimes to come up with a general rule. Um, I, you know, so here I will, I'll tell you one 
you didn't ask this question, but it comes to the question. Like, what have you changed your mind about in your 25 or six years of rapping? I'll tell you one of the things that I've absolutely changed my mind about. Um, if you'd asked me 25 years ago, is there ever a time when children shouldn't speak to their parents when they should cut them out of their lives? I would have said, no, they're your parents one way or another. You should. I don't believe that anymore. I've seen sufficient toxicity and, and cruelty. It's rare. It's really rare. I have to say most of the time, it's, that's not what's going on. There are a lot of other things going on. But I think that there are some people, even if they're very close people, that you cannot actually, you can't control someone else. And if they are malevolent forces in your life that can't be controlled, so you have to say, I no longer want you in my life. Um, and I know at least I can think of three people offhand whose lives are immeasurably better because they finally decided I can't be a part of, uh, parent or child goes both ways, um, this life. And it's tragic and it's sad, but it's also, I think, sometimes true. So yes, uh, there is no, there are no absolutes um, about that, I think, but they're really extreme cases by and large, um, as opposed to, <clears throat> friends who are annoying. And for them, of course, we all know what you do is you just lie. I'm sorry. I wish I could, but I, I, I have this thing, you know, I can't, I have the thing, you know, the thing I can't, I would, but I can't. Um, it's the perfect segue to my second question, which is you suggested how we get to this uh, better life. And what I, did not hear you talk about is the undiscovered traumas that often will block our reaching that, that openness, that curiosity, that uh, ability to experience the happiness that mm -hmm. we all deserve. So I wonder if you would talk about that. Sure, not only undiscovered traumas, some discovered traumas that, uh, that remain um, tremendously powerful in people's lives. And here, uh, I, I think, first of all, rare as they may be, a good therapist is indispensable. Um, rabbis are not therapists, and that's not how we're trained. And so I would not presume to advise someone on how to deal with the trauma other than the most elementary things that I've learned over the years. Um, so I think that that's really important. Uh, and, and I also think that it is important for the person, him or herself, to work on two tracks. One track is to understand the trauma, and the other track is not to let the trauma define who they are. Because I, I've seen how easy it is, especially for people who have really serious trauma in their lives, um, to feel that so overwhelmingly that that's how they define themselves as the person who went through this trauma. And that I think is ultimately self-defeating. So I think those are the two tracks that people have to work on, not saying that it's easy and maybe for some people ultimately won't be possible, but I think that's the aspiration. 
I will deal with my trauma, but I will also move past it to the extent that I can, which doesn't mean that it will disappear. It just means that it won't define me. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, so I don't see any questions, so I'm gonna take one or two. Uh, one is um, on perspective holding, being optimistic, pessimistic, realistic. How do you understand holding such perspectives as it relates to being a, living a happy life? So uh, I said that I was going to a conference Israel for Rabbi Sachs. He used to like to say that he's not optimistic, but he's hopeful because optimistic just means things will work a certain way. Hopeful means I can actually do something in order to influence their outcome. Um, I think a lot of this, I mean, I have to be honest, a lot of this is a blessing of your basic constitution. Um, I'm enormously lucky that I got, I think it was my father's constitution, basically, which means I, I sort of always assume things are going to be okay. Um, I default to things are going to be okay. Um, that doesn't mean that I never, you know, I never think um, that things could go wrong. But I have a fairly optimistic way of looking at the world, even if I try not to. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just very bad at despair. I just don't do it well. Uh, and that's not my merit. It's built into me. So I'm lucky in that sense. Uh, but I also do believe like on balance, people say it's good to have a negative because that way you won't be surprised, you know, but in fact, most of the studies that I've seen, and I've looked at some studies on this, show that if you are optimistic and if you are hopeful, you have a better chance of producing a positive outcome. And even when bad things happen, it doesn't necessarily shatter you. You just take that in stride as part of a larger picture of ultimate goodness. So I think that if it is possible for people to do it is in the end both healthier and happier for them to think positively of the world and look at it optimistically. Great. I'll, I'll take our last question. I'm not sure if you're my Maimonidean in this regard or not. Um, firstly, do you believe in a God of emotions? And if so, do you believe God is happy? And really at the essence of the question is, is, is happiness a religious imperative of halach de bedracha? Is it imitatio dei? Are we trying right. to emulate the divine in being happy? Um, so I'll, I'll take that in two, I'll take the second part first and then the first part second. I believe that God would not put us on this earth to be miserable. So I think that, yes, I think that our purpose here is to, is to be and spread joy, something deeper maybe than happiness, to be and spread joy. Um, and as to whether God is happy, Here's the way I think of it, um, which is sort of rabbinic in a way. That is, I relate to God as having emotions because it is impossible for me to relate to something without emotions. I am completely agnostic as to the true nature of God, by which I mean, not a, by which I mean this. I say sometimes to my high school students, look, when you were two years old, could you imagine what a 14-year-old is? And the answer is, of course, no. Not only could you not imagine, but you couldn't even imagine what you can't imagine, right? A two-year-old has no idea what they don't know about a 14-year-old. Now, the distance between God and David Wolpe is infinitely greater than that between a two-year-old and a 14-year-old. 
So for me to say God is this or God is that is really ridiculous because I have no idea. I don't even know what I don't know. All I do know is I can't relate to a God without emotions. So I'm allowing God to give me the right <laughs> to relate as if God does have emotions and, and what God's true nature is will just be beyond. And I'll give you one last uh, really beautiful um, teaching from Leon Medina, who was a 17th century Italian rabbi. He said, look, when you pray, people think if you pray for whatever, that you'll change God's mind and God will do it. He said, but this is how you should think about prayer. You're standing at the side of a lake and a guy is pulling a boat to the shore. If you were mistaken, he says, about mechanics and motion, you might think he was pulling the shore to the boat. So when people pray, they think they're pulling God to them. But really, when you pray, if you do it right, what you're doing is you're pulling yourself closer to God. So I feel like whatever it is that I'm doing, if it makes me feel closer to God, that I'm, I'm pulling myself up as opposed to knowing what God is and pulling God down. Um, I don't know. I don't even know what I am. So how could I possibly know what God is? Um, Fantastic. Um, and there you have it. Thank you so much. Thank you so sure. much. Natalie. We'll thank be, as you. Always, thank so much you for showing wisdom. up in the middle of the day. That was really nice. So I nice. So it. fun. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Tempo Emanuel, for co-sponsoring and BMHBJ for co-sponsoring. Thank you all so much. And our, our next two upcoming programs, we have Being Intimate with the Bible. Um, and we have Women's Resilience and Survival in the Holocaust. We hope you will Great. join those for those upcoming. Have a wonderful day, everyone, and Happy New Year. I think you can still say that because there's four Jewish New Years and two Bishvats coming. Have a great day. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.